Thank you for joining us at Truth Matters Church. In our journey through the book of Revelation, we've come across some very interesting and challenging truths that the whole of Scripture reveals. One area of particular interest is the relationship of God the Father and Jesus Christ. In this special study, we endeavor to more closely examine what the Bible says about this topic. And as always, setting aside our preconceptions and instead relying on Scripture to guide us. Now, before we get started, know that this message may be very challenging, but we encourage you to search the Scriptures along with us to find the truth. On that note, this is the first of two parts to this message. The second one is titled, Not Ashamed of the Godhead, which will answer several important questions you may have after this one. We strongly encourage you to listen to both for the full context of this special study, as this message alone only begins to open the door to our understanding of the unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Here is Pastor Alex. So if you can have your material ready... We will begin with our study today, and the title for our special study today is Equality with God. Equality seems like a buzzword, in, especially in today's world, isn't it? There is this emphasis for equality and inclusivity. I think we can at least have some understanding on that term, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to be talking about the statement and claim by both the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus himself, attributing Christ being equal with God and what that means. Because over the course of our studies, and we've been going on for maybe a couple years now, we've covered quite a bit of different biblical topics, doctrines, and what we're finding is a lot of our learning seems to be unconventional or even controversial. And a few of those learnings were aspects of the Father's authority within the Godhead, or as we know as the Trinity. And we've learned that the Father is the head of the Godhead. We've learned that there is a clear subordinate relationship between the Father and the Son. And there's different roles within the Godhead to accomplish God's redemptive will and plan. We've come across several truths, and these are just some of them over the years. We've learned that the throne in heaven belongs to God the Father. We learned that the Son has authority to sit on His Father's throne from our very own Lord's lips. He has authority to sit on His Father's throne. He calls the throne in heaven His Father's throne. We've also learned that the Father is giving His Son His very own throne, the throne of David. That throne, our Lord says, that is my throne. He who overcomes, I will give him the right or the privilege to sit on my throne, which is the throne of David, as I also overcame and have the authority to sit on His Father's throne. We've also learned that the Father delegated His authority to the Son. And we've learned that both the Father and the Son are co-creators. They didn't create apart from each other. Basically, everything started with the Father through the Son and ends with the Son presenting everything back to the Father. That's what the Scripture teaches and tells us. And what I've had to wrestle with, and probably you as well, is the notion that the second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, 
is in any way less in importance, less in power, less in authority because of his role in subordinate relationship to his father and the fact that his father is delegating him his authority. Because here's what we've been taught. Whether it be in seminaries or even systematic theology books and even church tradition, concerning Jesus is something, uh, something along these lines, and it's probably familiar to us and we're very comfortable with it. God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And since each person in the Trinity is fully God and fully divine, that must mean that no one is greater than the other. That each person in the Trinity is equal in everything, including power and authority. And here's a chart that kind of demonstrates this common teaching or school of thought. It looks something like this. If, let's just say, this pie chart... Let's say the entire pie chart, even though God is not containable, but if we tried to process it in our mind, that somehow, let's just say, this circle represents the Godhead. And there's three equal parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're co-equal in power and authority. I've read systematic theology books that advocate that. And then there's a lot of teachings and tradition that uphold that. What do I always say? What does the Scripture say? Not what does that teacher say? What does that theologian say? What does that pastor say? What does the Scripture say? What does it say? Is, that, is this chart, this idea of the Godhead co-equal in power and authority, is that a school or system of thought biblically balanced? What is the right and proper biblical view of the Godhead? Jeez, if you thought studying the end times in and of itself is a challenge, how about we try to describe the Godhead in the next hour? It's an impossible ask. Man, we're really, we're really reaching here, aren't we? We're really challenging ourselves, which is good. But what we're going to endeavor to do in our short time is to see what can we learn of this very unique and special and even mysterious relationship within the Godhead. So for our special topical study today, we're going to look at the relationship within the Godhead. And I want to say this, I'm not going to be touching upon the Holy Spirit. That in and of itself is still a mystery to me, and I'm very limited. And at least for the purpose of our study today, I'm not going to be touching upon Him. Because apart from his role in inspiring scripture, redemption, sealing us, the Holy Spirit remains that mystery. And I'm not going to say, how does he fit in all this? But what I'm going to endeavor to do is I'm going to focus on the relationship between the Father and the Son. And why is that? Because we can understand family-human relationships. Because we can understand family relationships, we can at least have an idea of the relationship between the Father and the Son. So we're going to focus on the relationship between the Father and the Son. And in particular, I'd like for us to take a close look when Paul says concerning the humility of Christ that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And hence, this is the title of our study, Equality with God. What does that mean? And is that pie chart accurate? Well, for our key passage, we're going to be focused on Philippians 2, 
verses 5 through 11. And it's that very familiar and profound passage to many of us. It's the passage where Paul addresses both the divinity and equality of Christ in light of his humiliation down and up to his crucifixion. And of course, before we get into our key passage, allow me to briefly summarize the context and the flow of this letter, and then we're going to pick it up in chapter 2. Sound good? Philippians, this epistle, is regarded as one of the four prison epistles that Paul wrote during his home arrest in Rome. So Philippians, along with Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon, is widely accepted as the letters that Paul wrote while under home arrest in Rome. Something about the believers in Philippi. When Paul would think about the believers in the church in Philippi, he thought highly of them. The very thought of them brought Paul great joy. And Paul was confident of the fact that God not only began a good work in them, but will perfect that redeeming work until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was encouraged by their continual love and support. They not only prayed for him, they financially supported him throughout his imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. You can have any idea why Paul found great joy with them or the thought of them. And part of Paul's motivation when he penned this epistle, he wanted to help their love abound in real knowledge and discernment. He wanted them to know, hey, despite his imprisonment, he wanted them to know it turned out for the greater good, for the furtherance of the gospel. Because even the whole Praetorian Guard knew why Paul was there. And because of that, the reputation of the gospel grew. And Paul's imprisonment, it encouraged others to speak boldly the word of God without fear. And the very fact that Christ was being preached and his imprisonment was causing other believers to preach Christ despite that opposition, it brought Paul great joy and he rejoiced. He didn't care what their motive was. All he cared about was that Christ and the gospel was being preached. Paul recognized that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul recognized that as long as he's alive, it means more fruitful labor for him. But in reality, it is far better that he dies and be with his Christ in his Savior's arms. As we get towards the end of chapter 1, Paul begins his exhortation. And part of that exhortation is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he's exhorting them to stand firm in the faith, in one mind and in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He also wanted to encourage them that they not be discouraged by the enemies of the gospel. He was saying the fact that there's enemies of the gospel and they're the object of that opposition was proof of their salvation. And it was proof that their of their opponent's destruction. He reminds them it was not only granted for them to believe, but also to suffer for his name's sake, just as Paul himself is suffering. This exhortation is going to continue into chapter 2 with the relationship within the Godhead front and center of his mind. I'll say this, when he is admonishing them to be of one mind and of one spirit, 
he is thinking about the relationship within the Godhead and saying that we ought to model how the relationship in the Godhead is happening. So he's going to continue with this exhortation. So with that, let's now read Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I'd like to do before we begin our exposition, because this is a good practice for us, I want to reread this text, but I want to insert the persons of the Godhead to help give us a little more clarity. So let me reread the same thing, but now I'm going to mention the persons in the Godhead. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ Jesus, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was also in Christ Jesus, who although Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, Christ Jesus did not regard equality with God, the Father, a thing to be grasped. But Christ Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in an appearance as a man, Christ Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God the Father highly exalted Christ Jesus and bestowed on Christ Jesus the authority which is above every authority, so that at the authority given to Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hopefully, the amplification of this text will help keep us grounded into this relationship within the Godhead. And before we begin our exposition, right at verse 6, what I'm finding, and which is why it's a good practice to make sure when you're getting to any passage of Scripture that you have the flow and the context in mind. Our goal 
any teacher's goal who's going to teach any passage before you is to try to get into the mind of the author so that we can get some insight. The insight that, in this case, what Paul was trying to communicate with the insight and the wisdom that was given to him is to get into the mind of Paul. And I found that getting reacquainted and integrated with this letter, that Paul, he had the relationship of the Godhead in his mind. And he saw how they were in perfect harmony. And that they're of one mind, of one spirit, intent on one purpose. And that they didn't look out for the, their own interests, but they looked out for each other's interests. The Father looked at the Son's interest, and the Son looked at the Father's interest. This was in the mind of Paul. And that's what gave him the exhortation to the believers. And it's on that note that he starts to get into the humility of Christ. So with that, let's pick it up in verse 6. Who, although Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, Christ Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's break down this verse. Existed is huparcho. And it's a compound of two Greek words, meaning to be ready, to begin, or at hand. And the Greek lexicon defines huparcho as to be in a state normally with the implication of a particular set of circumstances. And I want to talk a little bit more about this Greek word because Paul says that although Christ Jesus, huparcho in the form of God, what was transliterated to English is existed, but I want to look at the actual Greek word and its, its other uses in the New Testament to give us a better understanding Huparcho was used 31 times in the New Testament. And here's the different translations in the English. You know the most of the translations is possession. Possessions. 11 times out of the 31, we translated that same Greek word to possessions, given the context. Nine times it was being. Two times it was been. But only one time it's exist or existed or belonging, gone, live, own, possess, private means, property. But here's a takeaway. Although Christ Jesus was a man, he was always in a state and at hand was in the form of God. So I want us to now look at in the form of God. So Huparcho, just think of it as a state of being. That although Christ Jesus was in a state of being in the form of God. What does in the form of God mean? Form is morphe, which also means shape, to shape. Morphe was only used three times in the New Testament, twice here in Philippians 2 and once in Mark 16. In Mark's passage, he recorded that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared in a different form. We'll pick it up in verse 12. The context here is after Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene, she reported seeing him, but those with her didn't believe. And in verse 12, Mark wrote, after that, he, Jesus, appeared in a different form, a different morphe, to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others but they did not believe them either. So morphe quite literally means to change shape, to change appearance. Here's the implication. 
although Christ's outward nature was a man, inwardly he was and possessed a divine nature. Here's further implication. Although Christ's outward nature, his appearance was a man, inwardly he was and possessed an eternal and divine nature. So here's a couple of truths. Although Christ was a man, he was always in a state and inwardly was divine. He was no less deity. Here's another truth. Jesus' deity is also known as the God-man or God in human flesh. So quite literally, Jesus is the God-man. He is God in human flesh. That's the implication here. So if that's the case... Does this mean that Jesus Christ, by virtue of who He is, that He possesses full and equal rights of authority, power, and glory as His Father? Does this mean that that pie chart earlier is accurate? I wish it was that easy. Let's see what else Paul had to say. He says, although Christ Jesus is and was deity, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I want to ask us a question. Who is Paul referring to when he said God in this verse. Equality with God. God who? Speak up. Although Christ Jesus is deity, he didn't regard equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped. What does that statement mean? Well, let's do what we always do. Let's break this down by looking at the Greek. Equality is isis, not isis, isos. And it is used eight times in the New Testament. Three times it is translated equal. Two times it's translated consistent or the same. And one time it is translated here, equality in this verse. And I want us to look at other scripture examples so that we can understand isos. In the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, our Lord taught there, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and he did the same thing. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go work in the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foremen, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Beginning with the last group to the first. So when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received the denarius. When those who were hired first came, they thought that they would receive more But each of them also received the denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men who worked only one hour, you have made them equal, Isos, to us, to have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, He goes, Friend, I'm not doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give the last, this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? 
So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. But here's the takeaway about isos, because equality with God is isos with God. The idea is of equal payment, equal treatment. That's the idea behind this word. Mark 14, Jesus' mock trial before the high priest. Pick it up in verse 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent, was not isos. Some stood up and began giving false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another without, made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent, was their testimony isos. In this example, isos was used to describe how their testimony didn't line up or agree. So here's another idea. Isos with God has this idea of being consistent, aligning, agreeable with God. And I'd like to look at one more, which is the most comparable passage to Philippians 2. In John 5, Jesus was challenged by the Jews for healing a man on the Sabbath. We'll pick it up in verse 17. But he answered them, he goes, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal, isos, with God. Can we insert the persons of the Trinity on this one? Let's do that. Well, I'll read it again. But he answered and said to them, My father is working until now, and I, the son, am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because Jesus was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal, isos, with God the Father. And before I get into the truth in this passage, I want to ask us a series of questions. Are you guys with me? Who's God in this passage? Speak up. The Father. Who's Jesus in this passage? The Son. Is Jesus explicitly called God in this passage? No. Are they one or two people? Two. You got it all right. You get an A. Did you know, and this is where I spent a lot of my time, that this is consistent throughout the entire New Testament? The entire. Are you ready to go on this little journey with me to drive the point home? Here we go. Romans 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Okay, let me pause here. What I did was, to help us pay attention, I highlighted God the Father in one color, and I highlighted God the Son in another color so that we can pay attention. So let me read it again. So in this case, my highlight in yellow is God the Father, and my highlight here in blue is Jesus Christ. So now let's read it, keeping these markers so that we can identify who is being referred to throughout the entire New Testament. Let's, let's read it again. Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps at last 
by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Look at the answer. It's the same. Who's, who's God in this passage? Who's Jesus in this passage? He's Christ the Son. Is Jesus explicitly called God in this passage? No. Are they one or two people? Two. This is gonna, we have a lot of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-9. through nine. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you into the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you are also called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's God in this passage? The Father. Who's Jesus in this passage? Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus in him, the Son, the Lord. Is Jesus explicitly called God in this passage? No. Are they one or two people? Two. Let's keep going. Second Corinthians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God the Father. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort in abundant through, is abundant through Christ. Who's God in this passage? The Father. Who's Jesus in this passage? Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Is Jesus explicitly called God here? No. Are they one or two people? Two. You're getting this? I'm telling you, this is the entire New Testament. Entire. The whole thing. Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. God is the Father. Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or he in this passage. Again, is Jesus explicitly called God here? No. Are they one or two people? Two. Am I sounding like a broken record? This is the Bible, guys. Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God the Father. To the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Who's God? Who's Jesus? Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Is, he, is Jesus called God here? No. Are they one or two people? Two. Philippians, the book that we're studying right now. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God 
and Father in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer in joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the, go- in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he, God the Father, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Who's God? Who's Christ? Who's Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, even here, isn't explicitly called God. Are they one or two people? Two. I want us to get comfortable with this because this is, this is, this is big. I'm, re, I'm, going through, I'm surveying the entire New Testament for us. It's consistent. What we're learning is consistent. What we're seeing in the vision in heaven is consistent. The insights, the spirit that's in the New Testament authors is consistent. So stay with me. Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God the Father and Timothy, our brother. To the saints who are faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. God here is the Father. Who's Jesus? Jesus Christ. Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't called explicitly God here. The Father is. Are they one or two people? Two. Thessalonians. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God the Father always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God, our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God the Father, His, the Father's choice of you. Did you know that the Father chose you? Did you know that the Father chose me? And that those whom the Father has chosen, He's given to the Son? And that those who come to the Son that was selected by, elected by the Father, you will by no means cast out. His choice of you is speaking of the Father. Who's God? The Father. Who's Jesus? The Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus called God here? No. Are they one or two people? Two. I'm going to give us a little tip. When you see God or Theos, it's God the Father. In the Old Testament, when you see Lord capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, it's God the Father. The Father is capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, predominantly God is referring to God the Father. Let's keep going. Second Thessalonians, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church in of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Are we seeing this distinguishing between the two persons within the Godhead? Ooh, this one's a good one. Okay, you ready? I have to like really hone in on this one. Let's go to the two letters of Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Ooh, God our Savior. Did you notice I highlighted this in yellow, not blue? Why? And of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, 
To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is God in both of these? The Father. What else is the Father called? Savior. You're like, wait, I thought Jesus is Savior. Well, if it was the Father's plan to save you, but yet His Son carried it out, is it too far-fetched for us to know that the Father is Savior too? He is Savior. Our Father saved us. Our Father elected us. Our Father sent His Son to die for us and that His Son, in loving and perfect obedience, was sent so that He would lose none. Hopefully this is starting, we're getting a little more comfortable with this. Because this is Scripture. If you have an issue with this and you want to hold to a theology book or a theologian against the Scripture, that's your choice. That's your choice. I'm just giving to you the Scripture. What does the Scripture say? Is this color coding helping? This is another good one. You ready? Paul, a bondservant of God and, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus my true common my true child in a common faith grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior this way, this is another good one. Who's God in this passage? The Father, God our Savior. Who's Jesus in this passage? Jesus Christ, His Word, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Is Jesus explicitly called God here? Look, none of these, none of this, none of said Jesus is God and just said Jesus is God. God is talking about the Father, but He's Christ Jesus the Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the Son. If the authors are being careful not to go there right away, why are we as a church just going there right away? And that's why I'm saying I think it's an unintentional, but we're unintentionally taking the focus of the head of the Godhead, and that is the Father. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, let's amplify this, and I'm going to use the color coding. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God the Father, which God the Father promised through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's amplify this further. Here, hopefully with the labeling of the persons within the Godhead, that it'll help keep track on who's who. But I kind of answered it. Paul's gospel. Whose gospel is it? It's highlighted. I even amplified it for you. The Father. 
Wait, it's the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gave the Gospel to Paul. But the truth from Romans 1.1 that Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the Gospel of God the Father. Here's a truth. The Gospel, the good news, the Gospel of the Kingdom, the Gospel of His Son is from the Father. The good news The message of hope and salvation, that came from the Father. You're saved and I'm saved because of the Father. You're saved and I'm saved because He sent His Son to save and rescue us. And the Son did so. But the plan of salvation, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of even David, was all promised by God the Father. Folks, The gospel message is from God the Father. Paul acknowledged that. Did you get all that? We just went pretty much through the entire, we surveyed the entire New Testament, and I want us to close now. Let's start to kind of wrap this up. When Paul makes this statement, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although... He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then when Jesus called God his own Father, making himself equal, isos with God the Father in John 5, and looking at the Greek, here is what equality with God means. Are you ready? This is a biblical representation of what it means that when Christ didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or what it means when he claimed to be the Son of God and making himself equal with God. What does this mean? Although Christ Jesus was in a state and possessed all attributes and qualities of God, although Christ Jesus was fully man, he nonetheless was fully divine. When Paul declared that Christ Jesus did not regard equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, here's what Paul was saying. Christ Jesus is to be treated the same and have equal treatment as his father. Here's another way to say this. If the father got out of his throne and approached you, you give him full worship, adoration, and praise. If the lamb comes before you, you treat him equally the same. You give him full adoration, worship, and praise. When Jesus was calling God his father, He was saying that as the Son of God, He is to be treated the same, have equal treatment and equal reverence as God the Father. Not that He's equal with God the Father. He is to be treated the same. He is not the Father. But that isos, treatment as the Father. Another case in point, when Scripture says that Jesus is equal or has equality with God the Father, this doesn't mean that Jesus and the Father have equally divided power and authority and glory. And this is why Paul precisely said after making that statement, he says, but Christ Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, Christ Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God the Father highly exalted Christ Jesus and bestowed on Christ Jesus the name which is above every name, so that at the authority of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It is very clear from Philippians 2 that the authority within the Godhead is with the Father. And the Father, because of His Son's humiliation, carrying out the Father's will and plan to leave His side in heaven, to come to earth, to take on the likeness of man, to take on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cruel cross. Because of that, the Father in love exalted His Son and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name so that the authority that is above all authority, so that all authority of the Father is delegated and given to Christ Jesus, His Son, the Father exempted, and that every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to make another conjecture here as we close. Here's, a, here, here's the best way I can describe the equality with God statement. And I want us to look at the husband and wife relationship. The scripture is clear. The husband is the head of the family. The husband has the authority in the family. And the wife as an equal partner and a helpmate. But although the husband, by virtue of having authority in the family, does that in any way diminish the equality of the wife in the marriage? No. No. Even in the pattern of marriage, Within that relationship between a husband and a wife and the family, the father is the head, and the wife is an equal and joint heir, a joint partner in the gracious gift of life. The husband isn't necessarily greater than the wife, and the wife isn't greater than the husband. But the distinction is the authority is with the husband. Why is it all of a sudden, when we get to the authority within the Godhead, somehow, that doesn't fly. Our Father is the head of the Godhead. The authority within the Godhead is even in his title as Father of the Godhead. Does the Son have authority over the Father in a human relationship? Then why would the Son have authority in the Father and Son relationship? It's with the Father. But does that mean because of the Father and his authority, in the head of the Godhead, does that diminish Christ at all? No. And you know what? This is the beauty beauty and the mystery of the Godhead. The Father putting the interests of His Son, saying, I want all of creation that I'm going to create through Him to bow and worship and honor and revere Him as much as me. So what am I going to do? He's my chosen one, my favorite one. And He alone was found worthy to take the book sealed with seven seals from his hand. And that confirmed the Father's desire, will, and plan for all of heaven's hosts to now bow down and worship the Son. The Father went at great lengths. He created all this so that all would honor the Son as they honor the Father. And in turn, the Son wanted to make sure that all would honor the Father as they honor the Son. This mutual, beautiful relationship but the father is the authority within that godhead it makes sense and all this being said everything was planned by the father but in the father's plan he included his son both the father and son 
and Spirit joined in this unity of creation. The Son carried out His role in the Father's plan. The Father, in turn, delegated all authority in heaven and on earth to the Son. The Son will continue to carry out His role up to and including judging angels and man. And here's what the Scripture tells us. When all is said and done, and the Son judges all of His Father's enemies, He judges all men, all angels, and they are destroyed, and the holy and the redeemed are saved, then the Son will return the kingdom back to His Father so that all may be in all. This is the gospel of our God and Savior, and this is the gospel of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. We understand that this message may have been very challenging to go through, as it certainly was for us. But as mentioned at the start, please be sure to listen to the follow-up to this message titled, Not Ashamed of the Godhead, as it will answer a number of questions that may be on your mind. Again, we encourage you to study the scriptures for yourself and pray that the Lord reveals truth to you. Never take man's word over the Lord's. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.